Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the thought of a single Muslim thinker of the 20th century, Said Nursi. Said Nursi was born in 1878 in a small Kurdish village in what's now eastern Turkey. Now, over the course of his lifetime, he witnessed and was involved in many of the major historical developments of his time and place. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire after 600 years, the First World War in which he fought for the Ottoman Empire and ended up imprisoned and sent to a Siberian prison camp where he spent several years. He was then on his return to Turkey after meeting with various of the new leading figures of the Turkish Republic established out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire he found himself subsequently imprisoned and sent for decades to a small remote hilltop village where he lived out the majority of the second half of his life in an internal exile. Nonetheless, Nursi managed to produce over 6,000 pages of commentary on the Quran. And in that commentary, which he wrote in language that was understandable to the remote rural villages who lived around him in his years of exile, he tried to deal with many of the major existential and epistemological questions of the 20th century. Who are we as human beings? What is our true nature? What is true knowledge? And how do we know what we know? Living as he did through much of the 20th century, he died in 1960, Nursi also in his writings dealt a great deal then with science, both what science could teach us. He was a great admirer of scientific achievements, but also what science cannot teach us. Joining me in this conversation is Professor Mustafa Tuna. Professor Tuna is an associate professor of Russian and Central Eurasian history and culture at Duke University, and he's the co-author of a glossary of Islamic terms in the light of the Risale and Nur. Hello, Mustafa. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hey, Niall. Well, today we're going to be talking uh, about a single thinker and a single epic work, an epic work that was devoted across many volumes to a commentary and interpretation of the Quran. And in that commentary, we'll be seeing how our single thinker, Sayyid Nursi, more who he was in a minute, addressed many of the, the major existential and epistemological issues of the 20th century, which is to say questions about being. Who are we? What is our true nature as human beings? How should we consequently live our lives then and fulfill the, the, the meaning of being human? These existential questions there. And also those epistemological issues then of, 
of knowing, of knowledge. How do we know what we know? What is the basis of knowledge? And living as Nursi did through much of the 20th century, he was deeply interested, deeply concerned, I suppose one might say, about the impact of science and the interplay of science and religion, of religious knowledge, let's say, and scientific knowledge. In many ways, then, he was pursuing many of the issues as a Muslim that Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, and other major religious thinkers of the 20th century also necessarily had to address in the modern era. Nordicis was then a deep, thorough, and certainly very voluminous Muslim response to modernity. But to guide us through those uh, many volumes in around 50 minutes then is... Uh, you're going to be helping us do that then, then Mustafa. So I'll, as we I'll start try. off then, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt uh, that you'll, you'll succeed in, in helping us with that. So as we start off then, as we always start with Akbar's chamber, we don't assume any knowledge at all. So perhaps you can start, uh, begin us then, uh, Mustafa, with telling us who was Sayyid Nursi and why is he important? Yeah, sure. Um, Sayyid Nursi or Bedu'u Zaman Sayyid Nursi, as his contemporaries uh, called him, was a scholar of Islam, very, very accomplished scholar of Islam, a spiritual sage, and also an intellectual, uh, I would say in the modern sense of the term. Uh, he lived in, as you mentioned, in the late Ottoman Empire and Republican Turkey, 1877-78 through 1960. Um, the reason why his contemporaries called him Bedi Zaman, which mean, means something like the marvel of the time, was he was his erudition and sharp mind and also photographic memory. He authored a collection of uh, treatises, which is known as the Risale-i Nur uh, Kulliyat, which we can translate as the Epistles of Light. Uh, collection, uh, mostly in Turkish, occasionally in Arabic, maybe Kurdish, uh, Persian, too. Um, the main take, I would say, uh, from this uh, collection, which is uh, considered a commentary on the Quran, is his attempt to read the Quran, the natural world, and the human self side by side as books written by the same author and corroborating uh, one another. And this attempt uh, creates very important opportunities for intellectual thought and devotional practice in the Muslim uh, tradition in a context where the traditional institutions that preserved religiosity and devotion among Muslim communities, uh, that being the in colleges of Muslim learning, the madrasas and devotional brotherhoods, the Sufi tariqas, were either collapsing or being dismantled or becoming dysfunctional because of the, the consequences of colonization, hostile nation states, and overall effects of modernity such as urbanization and the popularization of po uh, positivist knowledge, et cetera. So in that context, Nursi came up with an innovative uh, system of thought and practice to cope with these challenges while remaining, and I think this is important, a defender of the Sunni Islamic uh, tradition. Well, thank you. That's so helpful then just to start us situating him among these really uh, tremendous historical, sociological, as you said, religious and, 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 and intellectual changes that are going on around him in Turkey. And indeed, as well, as was sort of hinted at uh, in your sort of uh, opening preamble there, these kind of linguistic changes as well as as the older, let's say, multilingual intellectual tradition of Islamic thought, which would be a regional language, which perhaps in his case might be Kurdish. 
he was of Kurdish background, as you'll tell us more, as well as, let's say, kind of an imperial language, in his case, Ottoman Turkish, and then the broader language of Islamic learning, Arabic and Persian. And those languages then in the 20th century through nationalism become narrowed towards a national language. And perhaps as you'll be telling us more, that was particularly the case in, in Turkey, as in a few other strongly sort of uh, nationalizing um, environments. Because Nurisi then lives through this also huge set of uh, historical changes. You've mentioned that he's born in 1878 or 79. This coincides with one of the themes you've already raised then of the, 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 the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and particularly the encroachment of the European powers then with the Congress of Berlin, which takes away then most of the Ottoman Empire's uh, 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 territories that it held for centuries in Southeastern Europe in the Balkans. And then in 1922, then, the end of the Ottoman Empire itself, after more than 600 years. So as I've been just you know, kind of thinking in preparation about Nursi, I've been thinking this man was in his mid-30s at this point, when this empire that had been around for over 620 years, an extraordinary longevity by the standards of any empire, collapses or is indeed is formally ended very, very quickly. So Nursi then clearly lived through this period of tremendous change there the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and then just as suddenly the, the rise, the establishment, the enforcement of a stridently secular Turkish Republic under Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. So perhaps you can give us something of the, the, the biography amid this historical context then of, uh, of Nursi as, he, as his ideas took shape in this historical context. Yes, sure. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, the, the year he was born was the year of the, the Russo-Ottoman War, when the Ottomans experienced a huge uh, defeat uh, before the, the Russians. And, you know, it, it is downhill uh, from there. Uh, he probably did not notice all of this in his childhood. Uh, he was born in this um, distant village in Eastern Anatolia, a Kurdish village in Eastern Anatolia. And most of his you know, childhood, he you know, went and education, he went between villages of the region from one teacher to another. He had a really sharp mind. Uh, I mean, he was a gifted child, I suppose. So he couldn't find a teacher that was sufficient uh, for him for a long time. Uh, but eventually in uh, one madrasa, he finds one teacher. Uh, and once he is in the right hands, he just you know, flourishes. Uh, within a couple of years, he finishes the entire madrasa curriculum, uh, memorizing the books that he's supposed to be studying. So he's not only studying them, he's also memorizing them. And then with the uh, certification he has from his teacher, he goes back to the world, but the world is still this Eastern Anatolian region, the Kurdish villages uh, in the, in the uh, vicinity, and perhaps now towns also uh, are playing a role. And he's starting to slowly learn about the world. He is hurling his, himself into these debates with the established scholars of the region. And wherever he goes, this firebrand young man, uh, you know, smart and has, you know, wins all the debates that he's entering. So he makes a name for himself. And by um, around his 20s, 1897, the governor of uh, the, the cosmopolitan center of the region, Vaughan, uh, takes notice of him and invites him to, to Vaughan. Uh, that governor leaves, but another one comes. And this new one also gives him protection. He has access to the governor's mansion and especially, importantly, the governor's library. 
which we learned was a pretty large uh, library. It, it burned, therefore we don't know exactly what was in there. But having uh, become an accomplished scholar of Islam, Nursi there recognizes, discovers uh, in translation, perhaps possibly in French too, but I cannot uh, you know, prove this, uh, the works that this governor had accumulated in his library of positive sciences, uh, politics, society, uh, magazines, uh, periodicals coming to there, and being a voracious reader, he goes through all of that too, and also trains himself as what we might call a Renaissance man, uh, with expertise in astronomy, geography, math, he writes a treatise on algebra, uh, biology, and so on and so forth. And one other thing that he's recognizing here, of course, is he's in the mention of the governor, what is happening to the Ottoman Empire. One thing that really highlighted in his biography, he himself highlight, highlights it too, is uh, one day he reads in the newspaper that some statesman in uh, the British uh, parliament says about Muslims that we have to take this Quran from their hands. If we don't do it, we won't be able to uh, subordinate them. And he there resolves, resolves to prove to the world that the Quran cannot be uh, you know, subdued, etc. So this, this firebrand emotions in him are now being channeled to a, an intellectual's uh, sensibilities, becoming a man of the society. Uh, he starts to think about solutions to the problem. In 1907, he goes to Istanbul uh, and he actually goes to the Sultan and asks for money to build a madrasa in Eastern Anatolia, where he says he wanted to teach religious sciences and positive sciences together in Turkish, Arabic, and Kurdish, which uh, you know goes back to this, you know, what's happening in the empire and what is to come uh, down the road. Uh, but the the Young Turk Revolution happens in 1908. He likes that too. Uh, he doesn't have a very good experience with the Sultan at the beginning anyway, uh, but he likes the revolution because it brings constitution to the empire. And his overall mentality is that he's a liberal, right? He wants the constitutional conditions put on the absolute power of the Sultan. He wants the discourse of freedom of the time. He supports the Young Turks for a few years, but then that also comes apart, he notices, because of the factional uh, fights in the among the Young Turks, etc. So he goes, he decides to, he gets the money that he wants, he decides to go back to uh, one and establish his madrasa, he lays the foundations, but World War One starts, right? So this is again, this time of troubles, one thing after the another. Um, as the Russians, uh, move into the, the, the Ottoman lands at the time, he organizes a, a voluntary unit of uh, you know, soldiers, of a battalion of voluntary soldiers and defends the city of one. Uh, and he follows a POW at that time to uh, the Russians who take him to Kostroma in Siberia. He spends close to a couple of years there. And now, you know, he is getting close to his forties, this firebrand man, <laughs> closed up uh, in this little town in northern Russia, he starts to go through a spiritual search, very similar to you know, what we read about Imam Ghazali, his famous uh, you know, travails of uh, you know, established scholar, but where do I stand with that? Uh, Ghazali is the, the, the famous, well, I guess he dies in 1111, so I suppose the, the famous 11th, 12th century, great Muslim synthesizer of Sufism, mysticism, law, and so on, is the episode. Yes, yes. So there's a very similar process going on there. And he starts to focus more on these existential questions that 
uh, you know, you were referring to. But then the Bolshevik revolution takes place. He escapes from Russia, goes to Istanbul, and he is welcome as not only an accomplished scholar, but also a war hero. Now, he has a really good life, as he describes it at this time. He is appointed a member of the Ottoman Empire's top highest institute of Islamic uh, scholarship. He rents a nice house in the Chamlija Hills, uh, which is one of the really nicest parts of Istanbul. Uh, as he's, you know, once again hurled into the world, one day he looks at the mirror and notices that the, the white pieces of hair on his beard, and he's like, one, one, one second, what's going on? I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not doing, he feels, what I'm supposed to be doing in this world. And then we have this period of withdrawal and that spiritual search continuing again, uh, but then the British occupy Istanbul. So, the, the intellectual and, and activist in him is awakened again. And while the British are occupying Istanbul, he writes some pieces against the occupation. So he's again in the world. The resistance movement in Ankara, which was organized against British, Greek, uh, French, etc., occupation after World War I, invites him to Ankara. He goes to Ankara, and the leader of the movement, of course, is Mustafa Kemal. And there he notices that Mustafa Kemal and his retinue around him have no intention to revive the Ottoman Empire, and as importantly, the Ottoman Caliphate. So it's not only an empire, but also the caliphate, the, 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 the institution that unites all Muslims around the world. He notices that, but he doesn't think that he can deal with this, so he decides to withdraw again from society altogether, and he goes to one and actually withdraws to a cave. So he lives in a cave for a couple of years, um, but then uh, in the meanwhile, the Turkish Republic is founded, right? Uh, but then there was a revolt in the region, Sheikh Said Rebellion. This is a Kurdish rebellion against the secularizing and nationalizing uh, impulses of the Republic. Uh, he discourages this. He doesn't want Muslims to be fighting among each other. Uh, but after the revolt was suppressed, the government was so uh, uh, fearful of his charisma in the region, along with many other leaders, uh, prominent leaders, notables of the region, they exile him to Western Anatolia, uh, to first to a city called Sparta, then to a village of Sparta called Barla. I've been to that village. It's interesting. At the time, right now you can go uh, you know, by road to the, to the village, but at the time, it's a mountain village. You would have to climb the mountain, uh, probably with a your military jeep or something or on horseback then cross a lake and then after you cross the lake by boat you would have to climb a bit more that is where barla is so they probably thought that he would disappear from history once they put him in uh, barla internal exile isn't it, i guess is the idea yeah 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 uh, i mean it sounds incredible that a man who was confined to this village then becomes such an important figure in turkish history and I would say global history of Islam after that. What happens is the uh, you know, peasants around him recognize that this is an accomplished scholar. They start to ask him questions and some of them are literate. They, they start to take uh, note of what he is saying. And for about 10 years after that, he keeps dictating and dictating and dictating. And these peasants around him create a, what you can call a, a manuscript machinery, hand copying what he says in small, these are like usually small treatises and distributing them through an underground network uh, of, of connections. And, and the, the Risari Nur collection is the, the, the consequence of his dictations to these peasants at the time. Importantly, uh, 
recognizing his interlocutors, his, his addressees uh, in the in the Risale Inner Collection, Nursi uses a language, Turkish, uh, and and uh, in all Turkish by today's standards, but understandable to the peasants, he uses a language that makes things easy to grasp using representations, parables, and so on and so forth. Um, and everything that he writes eventually becomes the Risale Inner Collection. The government takes notice of this, they exile him again in 1935, they exile him again after that, they imprison him for a while. So the rest of his life after 1925 is a life of arrests, imprisonment, exile, and so on and so forth. In 1953, with a new government in Turkey now, the Democratic Party, which is democratizing the country, they let him settle where he wants, which turns out to be Sparta, and he settles with a group of students there and spends the rest of his life uh, you know, distributing the Risale Inur. Only in the late 1950s, he was allowed to actually uh, you know, publish them, print them. Uh, but the afterlife of his works is that they, uh, he dies in 1960. In the afterlife of his works, they inspire many religious movements in Turkey, and I would say within the past two, three decades globally. Thank you so much, Mustafa. That's really given us a sense then of, of yeah, this this extraordinary life. In I think I'm right in remembering that he that Said Nursi himself divided his life into three parts, or at least various scholars have. And he lives, as you mentioned, 1878, 1969 to 1960. And there were these periods of of I suppose him in a sense flourishing in the late Ottoman system as a scholar, then as a war hero then this sort of self-retreat and, and, and then indeed this uh, imposed uh, internal exile when he, he then produces his works. And, 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 and just to sort of build on what you've been explaining to us, I, I think for listeners, it's, it's important to recognize that when Mustafa Kemal then, the, the founder of the Republic of Turkey then, this um, um, very determined secularist and secularizer then, as you've mentioned, he ends the the Caliphate, 1924. Then he bans the Sufi orders and other Sufi institutions the following year. He also ends the old Ottoman religious hierarchy that, that you mentioned, the Elmir with its madrasas, its religious hierarchy, its religious lawyers, etc., and creates a, a state religious organization that's often called the Dianet, isn't it? Sometimes translated as the Directorate, the, the state yeah. sort of loyal to the state, a religious directorate. The Hajj is banned to Mecca till the late 1940s. So these new Turkish, uh, the Muslims of Republican Turkey can't even go on, on the Hajj for a long time. So there's this real determined secularization. And there's also the other thing I want to pick up on what you're explaining to us about the, the, these two periods of, of, of Norse's intellectual and spiritual life. The early period then, as you mentioned, of his readings and earlier publications and this period of the booming late Ottoman print culture. There are so many newspapers in the Ottoman Empire, in various languages, of course, as well. And a lot of them are sort of translating all manner of scientific works, as well as literary and other kind of political works from European languages. So he's really exposed to all of this kind of scientific thinking through the late Ottoman press. And then there's this new period then in, from the 1920s onwards, when it's really a new form of Turkish then, this Turkish in the so to speak, European, the Romanized Latin script, 
Turkish, that's stripped in many ways of Arabic or Persian terms. The Quran itself has to be officially translated into Turkish, doesn't it? And that's published in what the mid 1930s, 1935, I think. And yeah. and the various bans, of course, there's a censorship on various types of publication, including notices. So when he's in a sense smuggling out or writing and having this informal publishing of, of, of his text, it's in a sense the a bit like that old adage of media studies, the the medium is the message. There's something of that in the sense he's having to, as you've explained, smuggle out through these villages, right in a way that's right in a way that's understandable to even the villagers of Turkey in a simplified language, even the most profound uh, topics that he's discussing philosophically, theologically, but also in these sort of this piecemeal sort of bits of the Risala, isn't it, that, that I described as a single work, but of course the medium is the message in the sense that he has to smuck it up bit by bit, so it's actually in many senses, as, as you described it, the epistles of light or the the treatises of light, then these many short little bits of writing that are smuggled out, which reminded me of the, the phenomenon that you as also a scholar of the Muslims of Russia as well, you know, the, the Samizdat, that all sorts of Soviet dissidents, Muslims or otherwise, the word that meant self-published, this sort of unofficial um, sort of trying to get around Soviet censorship. So let's let's start to dig in then to, to this most famous work or this compendium then of these, these small self-published treatises then, the Risalia Nur, the epistles or the treatises of light, which is effectively, let's say, a 6,000-odd page commentary on the Quran. Because like many 20th century Muslim teachers, Nursi advocated a return to the Quran, that Muslims, in a sense, go back directly to the Quran, but he helps them, in a sense, to do that through this commentary. So he's helping ordinary Muslim people access, but also understand the scripture for themselves. But in doing so, then his goals weren't only moral, looking to the Quran for, let's say, rules about what people should or shouldn't do. He's not sort of, let's say, merely a formulator of, of, of Sharia or religious law or, or moral principles. He's also deeply concerned, as we mentioned in the intro, then with questions of epistemology, which is to say, what is true knowledge? How do we know what we know and how do we know how to know? So can you explain for us, notice his teachings there on the Quran as a means of knowledge? Yes, um, let me start this with a caveat. Um, at some point I published an article and, I, and there I called Nursi the famous unknown uh, in reference to what Imam Maturi, the, the famous you know, founder of one of the theological schools in Islam has been called. Um, he is kind of known everywhere. His name, Nursi's name, is kind of very commonplace nowadays, but very few people actually understand what he actually said. Uh, so I want to start by saying he was not a literalist. He was not a Salafi. He was not a modernist. He was not progressivist. His focus on the Quran was not, uh, was not coming from uh, this aspect of modern uh, history of Islam. Right, the, the 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 literalist push in Islam. He was steeped in the tradition, and he defended it. He wanted. He saw himself as defending it. Um, he was 
trying to expand the boundaries of the tradition to empower it in the face of modern challenges, not to transform the tradition. In that sense, he was a renewer and also reviver. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, Mujaddad is the, the word, right, that's used in the Islamic tradition. Uh, he was not a transformer of the tra tradition. He was daring before the world as his biography uh, you know, suggests, but he was humble before the tradition. And I would say the depth of his knowledge was informing his humility uh, before the tradition. So I think this is very important because when you read him, you do not come across you know, merely a sharp intellect trying to prove his point. He was, you engage a man who sincerely sought to understand the fundamental questions of existence. And the way he put was with three questions. Who are you? Where are you coming from? Where are you going to? Like, it can't be more basic. You know, it can't get more basic than that. But it's, you, the, the more basic you get, the more to the essence you reach, right? So he was struggling, working hard to reach certitude about answers to these questions about the meanings of life and existence. And he was also working hard to practice what he preached and was willing to make sacrifices for his convictions. Um, so that said, that, that he, I would rather place him in the tradition, he was also innovative within the tradition. He was trying to revive uh, the, the tradition and, and revive in the tradition what he thought to be the central message of the Quran or one of the central messages of the Quran. And that is uh, that the, the, the cosmos and human self are full of signs pointing to the creator. And the point about this is that if you can see these signs everywhere, the signs of the creator in the cosmos and human self, wherever you turn, that means you are both surrounded and filled with reminders about God, and therefore you live in constant presence of the divine. And that's important because this was something that was promoted and preserved as an ideal for Muslims throughout history, right? That is where Sufism, uh, the, the devotional aspect of Muslim practice uh, emerges and, and uh, makes its contribution to the Islamic tradition, right? So in this Sufi uh, path, let's say, uh, the way to attain that presence of the divine was through detachment from the world with ascetic practices, with the understanding that by turning away from the world, one would, uh, one's inner sight would be opened up to metaphysical realities. Uh, the various schools of Sufism differed in their techniques of self-disciplining and how to detach the, the, the person from the world, etc. But ultimately, they aim to attain that sense of presence. And in, as a result of which they would say, you would have an internalized knowledge of God. Academic knowledge or rational argumentation could help you to, 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 you to know what God was not, uh, but the, the, they wouldn't help you understand what God is, right? Uh, to attain that positive knowledge, you had to abandon the creation and wait for the divine to expose himself to you. So typically, this required a long and arduous uh, process of self-disciplining under the close guidance of a spiritual master, et cetera, et cetera. But in the modern era, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the Sufi lodges, Sufi brotherhoods were banned in Turkey. And where they were not banned, other things like urbanization, the, the uh, spread of all sorts of information through the media, et cetera, uh, cost 
a lot to this uh, to this tradition. Uh, you couldn't be in touch with your Sufi master while you were living 500 miles away attending to your work and were able to go back to your village perhaps once a year etc. Um, so something new Nursi thought had to be brought into the tradition or revitalized in the tradition that would allow people to attain that sense of presence before the divine. Uh, and he thought that this was going to be by cultivating the, the believer's ability to see the signs of the creator in the creation, in the natural world, and in the human self. Um, now, this is not new. Early scholars called this uh, which can be translated as indication of that which is seen to the unseen. Um, and the Quran repeatedly calls people to look at the you know, creation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But for concerns about epistemology, certainty of knowledge, the, the, the assurance about the, uh, the, the definitive uh, truth of the knowledge that we have, the Kalam tradition, the traditional dialectical theology in Islam, uh, where scholars would discuss and develop uh, evidence for existence of God and oneness of God and so on and so forth, distance itself from this aspect of the tradition from around the, I would say, 11th, 12th century on. We don't see much of it. So that's why this was something that needed to be revitalized. And they, their problem in a nutshell was, let's say I'm looking at things around me. I'm looking at the world, the, the creation, according to tradition, right? I'm looking at the world to learn about God. Yet the Islamic tradition would say there is nothing like God. God is the creator. This is the creation. They, they are different species of things, right? And the Quran says, too, there is nothing like God. So how can I attain the knowledge of God from things that are utterly unlike him? So Norsi's response to this was something he called qiyas tamthili, which we can translate as analogical uh, reasoning for simplicity's sake. It can get more complicated, but no need to go there. And this is how I think we can make sense of this. Think of a masterfully made dining table. A carpenter made it. Now, is the table anything like the carpenter? No. But can the table teach us anything about the carpenter or something about the carpenter? Yes. For instance, and first of all, the carpenter exists. Nobody would believe me if I said an old tree somehow fell and broke apart and the table you know, accidentally emerged from that if everybody will say, no, there was a carpenter there. What else? Many things. The carpenter has enough power to handle the pieces of the table. He can lift that leg. He can lift that you know, uh, flat surface. He is capable of making certain decisions, where to cut, where to put the glue, how to curve the leg, how to smooth the top. He has sight. He has certain types of knowledge and skills. He can cut wood with precision. He can smooth wooden surfaces. He can carve wood. He has a sense of aesthetics. It is beautiful. He knows about the dimensions of the human body. He made the table at the height to, to and size to fit, let's say, six individuals sitting on chairs comfortably around it. He has a sense of understanding of the human nature. He knows that people need to eat, and this is how people eat. This is how they sit when they eat. He has an understanding of how gravity works. He has he made four legs, not two, so that the table stands on four legs, so on and so forth. Now, what is analogical reasoning here? 
we are making an analogy from the qualities that we observe on the table to the qualities that we attribute to the carpenter. Not from the table to the carpenter, but from the qualities of the table that to the qualities that we attribute to the carpenter. That is, I'm not making inferences about the person of the carpenter in ways that could not be substantiated observing the table. I'm not saying that the carpenter is blonde, 52 years of age, has three kids and married. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not limiting the carpenter's attributes to the qualities I observe on the table either. I know that he can make a table to fit six individuals. I'm not going to infer from this that he cannot make a table for 10 individuals, etc. What I'm doing is this. I'm observing metaphysical or a metaphysical quality or metaphysical qualities on a material object and inferring that the maker of this object is the source of those qualities without any implications of limitation about the extent of those qualities as the maker's attributes. So that is that this is what exactly what Nusi would do. He would give you a representational story. He would give you a concrete example uh, that would make sense in your easy, simple world and set a cognitive frame in the mind. And then he would move on to the, the more complicated metaphysical questions, existential questions. So let's bring that example that we had to theology, right? I observe beauty in the world, as he would say. I infer that this beauty must have a source. Whoever made the world is the source of the beauty that I, that I observe in it. Thus, whoever made it, whoever made the world, and we will call this God, right, possesses the attribute of beauty. Or I observe orderliness in the world. I, I infer that whoever made the world has power to keep things in order and wisdom to ordain and regulate this order. We can expand the examples, but you know, I suppose this will uh, you know, suffice uh, about this. Now, the next question is, as a human being, how do I recognize beauty? So it, the, the issue does not end there. This is the core of the matter, actually. How do I know what order is? Am I observing individual cases of beauty in the world and inf inferring from the aggregate of the commonalities of these things, an abstract and universal concept called beauty or order? And if this were the case, uh, which philosophers you know, called inductive inference or inductive reasoning, right? Uh, going from you know, cases to a principle. Our epistemology, our uh, you know, how we know things, right? Would quickly collapse because we have no certainty that what we had observed as beauty in yesterday's world will continue to be there in tomorrow's world. Yes, we have repeatedly observed objects fall down, fall because you know, when we drop them, right? And we call this uh, gravity. But we cannot have certain knowledge that the next object we drop will also fall. It can fly, or it may fly. Right? I, I mean, I do not assume that it's going to fly. I assume that if I drop my cup, it's going to you know, fall and break. I build my expectations uh, on my experiences as, as I live in the world. Uh, and this is the foundation of positivist science. But that is still not certain knowledge. It is probabilistic knowledge. I have, say, 99.99% probabilistic assurance that the, the, the cup will fall and break, but I don't have 100% certainty that it will. Now, the problem is, in matters of theology, the Islamic tradition did not find probabilistic or presumptive knowledge to be sufficient. It was sufficient in legal matters, but not in talking about God. Talking about God required certainty.
So Norsi's solution to this problem was to locate our ability to grasp concepts in the innate human nature. How do I know what beauty is? How do I know what order is, right? His solution was to locate, locate that ability in the, they would call this futra in Arabic, the innate uncorrupted human nature. Uh, in explaining a verse from the Quran, uh, chapter two, verse 31, uh, where we learn about God having taught all names to Adam, Nursi commented, and I'm going to read this from a translation. That is, God fashioned Adam with an innate nature that entails the beginnings of all varieties of perfections, created with him aptitudes in which all varieties of lofty virtues are cultivated, equipped him with 10 senses and a conscience in which the entire existence is represented, and prepared him with these three things to learn the realities of beings in their varieties, then he taught him all the names. So the, he taught him all the names is uh, from the verse. Thus, he would say, the human being has the knowledge of the essences of things deep in there. It's hardwired. Uh, you know, concepts like beauty, order, justice, majesty, mercy, so on and so forth. These are hardwired into the human nature. And as a result, observing them in the created world becomes an act of remembrance not observation, not inductive inference, but remembrance. And this saves us from the troubles of you know, relying on induction. Now, can we prove this? Can we prove that the concept of beauty, order, justice, etc., are hardwired in the human nature? So we have to start from somewhere. We have to have some a priori uh, beginning point. And the response to this would be, Nursi's response to this would be, every person, every human being senses that in himself senses that he does have an understanding, a concept of uh, beauty. Um, now, this is the, 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 the framework in which his arguments would work, but there is a, we need to make a caveat about it. Although knowledge of these essences are hardwired in the human nature, nature, one can still err in attributing meaning to what one observes. I observe beauty, Right in the in the, on the tree, but how I interpret what I uh, conclude from that beauty can be can be false because our perceptive capacities remain limited. We see one side of a thing, not not the other. We see some parts of the big picture, not the whole. We smell the rose, but not the dust particle on the rose, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what's the solution? He would say our process of remembrance needs to be guided by a source that has complete and comprehensive knowledge of the big picture and, and also can represent it accurately. That Nursi would say is the Quran, that comprehensive source of com complete and comprehensive knowledge is the Quran, revelation and God ultimately. And so there we close the loop. The natural world needs to be read with the hardwired wired faculties of the human self under the guidance of the Quran. Now, um, Nursi does not spend a lot of time on explaining his epistemological theory. As I said, he was writing, addressing these peasants around him. In his earlier life, he has really scholarly works, like he has books on logic, etc. But now he is addressing the, the peasants around him. We figure out the system from rather short statements in various parts of his work and the practice itself. And uh, you know, his focus was not to develop a philosophical theo the theory of knowledge. He had that theory, right? He had already 
build that theory, grasp that theory. Uh, in his early years, he had written, as I said, you know, books on logic, etc. Therefore, he was standing on a firm foundation as he spoke, but he spoke to the common man or woman in the street or in the village whose faith he so was being threatened at the time he was living, right? Therefore, his focus was on conveying knowledge on the divine as he observed in the observable universe to the generally uninitiated audiences. Now, analogical reasoning came in handy here in another respect because it could be, it could easily be used with metaphors, representational stories, the way I just did, parables, right? And um, this was also something that Nursi observed in the Quran. And he says this early on, before he writes to the Salinu, he says, this is the method of the Quran. And he also says, this is the method of Rumi and Saadi Shirazi. And he addresses himself saying, do as they did. There's right? great medieval, Sufis writing in Persian, effectively, the two men. Yes, yes, yes. He, he had read them too, and he was like, he liked the, their pedagogy, right? So this was not a, a, about epistemology only, it was also pedagogy. Um, yeah, so he also builds much of what he writes in the Risale Nur collection in shorter treatises earlier on, 1919 through 1922. But those are like short notes to the self. In the Risale Nur, those meanings that he had taken notes about flourish and, 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 and become uh, pedagogically meaningful works uh, of, of explaining the, the corroborative uh, cooperation between the Quran, the natural world, and human self. So that's really helpful then. In, 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 in explaining what you'd set up for us then there at the beginning, Mustafa, which is that Nursi is, is, is really building on tradition. He's renewing Islamic tradition. He's not, let's say, as you said, he's not a modernist, someone that's, sort of, as it were, starting out of taking, let's say, science or, or the, the key claims of, 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 of modern scientific knowledge and say, okay, we must reconcile the Quran and Islam with those. Those are the key point of reference. It's almost in reverse, isn't it? He's trying, in, in a sense, trying to re-explain, renew tradition in a way that's understandable and meaningful and relevant and indeed achievable, as you said. If there are no Sufi orders anymore, how achievable as it is for you to say, okay, go and follow a Sufi master, if, if that's yeah. for the reasons you explained, not possible. And that sense of building on tradition and indeed drawing on, on the Quran as well as sort of other forms of, of course, of more than a thousand years of, 1200 years of the explication of, 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 of the Quran, or indeed of Islamic philosophy and the Sufis, is the word you've been mentioning, the, the, the names that you've mentioned a number of times. These are the, the Asmal Husna, the divine names or the beautiful names, to I guess translate literally, of the Quran, the 99 names of God. And of course, perhaps non Muslims will just be familiar with Allah, that's the name of God in, in Islamic tradition. But of course, all of these other names. Uh, which are these attributes then, which is being explained, are also present in the creation because the creator has the attributes and therefore what he creates is actually present there. That notion then of remembrance of you, as you've mentioned, that's also a key Quranic term, isn't it, that comes up in various formulations. And of course, it's there in the Sufi tradition too, the key Sufi practice of dhikr, remembrance of repeating certain verses of the Quran or indeed certain phrases. And fitra, the 
the, the core of human nature, who are we, and the existential issues, and then indeed, how do we know in that way? And I think that's so, so important. And again, what you've been explaining of, 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 of Nurse's epistemology, or at least his, indeed his practical epistemology of, of how do we know, that builds on Islamic tradition. And it also, of course, it reflects other human traditions and other religious traditions as well, in accordance, of course, with what we would think of an Islamic notion of fitra, that this wouldn't be unique only to Muslims. It, it's part of human nature. And that's, of course, that idea of then, of the, that becomes expressed, is reason or indeed uh, reasoned inference based upon the evidence of the senses, is that sufficient for true knowledge? Can we only look at the universe? And of course, that was explored by various figures like William Paley in the Christian Anglican tradition and the argument from design. He chose the, the finding a clock or a watch, actually, a pocket watch, famously, rather than the table. Or indeed, Ibn Tufail in the Islamic or Islamic tradition then, who the, the origin of the, Mike, the, the Robinson Crusoe story, in a sense, of the, this medieval Andalusian philosopher who says, if there's a human being, there's a man upon an island and doesn't read the Quran or the Bible or anything, can he, just by observing the universe, come to true knowledge? And of course, for figures like whether Paley or indeed various Orthodox Muslim figures, then that the idea then is well, reason, the reasoned inference from the senses isn't enough, isn't sufficient. One needs also revelation as well, and hence the Quran, and I guess, and hence the commentaries on that. So these are really kind of, these aren't quirks of Nurse. These are larger existential epistemological questions shared across various religious traditions, particularly the Abrahamic traditions, of course, each of which have the book, have a, a scripture, um, and indeed are deeply rooted in Islamic tradition as well. But returning then to the particular context in which we've set Nursi up in the 20th century, and that's the context particularly of the rise of, of science, isn't it? Because again, whether Muslim or Christian, Buddhist or Jewish, many of the major religious things of modern times are grappled then over the relationship between faith, or we might in, indeed say revelation, and science. And living then as, as Nurse did through till 1960, through the heyday of many of the major scientific achievements of the late 19th and first half of the 20th century, he was deeply interested in science. He'd read a lot about it as well, as we said, particularly his early life. But he was also deeply concerned by its darker side, which he had experienced in the First World War, not least. And in terms of the these darker side, in terms of the spiritual, though, as well as the material and, and as it were, sort of bellicose consequences of science that he saw in, in the two world wars. So can you tell us then, what was the place of science in Nurse's thought? Um, in, in one of his early works on logic, he says say something that's uh, really profound and makes a lot of sense for me. He says uh, something along the lines of what harm has come uh, from generalizing things that are specific and specifying things that are general, right? So what he means there is uh, when we look at the matter, we need to understand the generals and specifics of the matter, and we need to understand the conditions under which certain judgments and rulings are passed or, or, or apply, right? So I think his take on science follows this, follows this like general 
principle. When he thinks of science, he's not thinking of one thing, right? Science has various faces. Um, and and there, there are various conditions that apply to those various sciences in his world. Um, so one condition or one way to look at this is uh, the, the positivist scientific modernist push uh, or deluge, I can say, that was invading the entire world at the time he was coming of age and telling people that religion was just, just hearsay, knowledge could only be attained from what you can see and experiment with, uh, things that you could not see, perceive, or experiment with were, were either false or not worth uh, thinking about. Uh, then overall rejection of metaphysicality, right? Um, and, and this was a very real thing at the time. Uh, you know, it's, it's attributed to Mustafa Kemal and written on one of the universities in Turkey in Ankara with big letters carved into rock, right? The, the, the most truthful guide in life is science, right? So this obviously contradicts the very essence of any religion because the you know, most truthful guide to truth is supposed to be something either revelation or inspiration, right? Something that's discovered beyond what you see and observe and, and you know, perceive. So he um, writes quite a bit uh, about uh, the deficiency of conceptualizing existence as limited to mere matter and force coincidence and or hypothetical notions of nature with a capital N. So this is one aspect of it. And he is quite forceful about that. But at the same time, when science is stripped from, let's say, scientism, Nursi had no problem with it. And not he, it is not only that he did not have a problem with it. He actually liked it a lot. It was a really positive thing. Uh, for him because he saw it as an instrument that expands our ability to observe the signs of creation in the world. With the naked eye, I can, you know, or the believer can see an ant, ladybugs, aphids, crickets, etc., uh, and, and marvel at the signs of creation manifest on them, etc. But with a microscope, you know, the believer can see bacteria, microbes, mites, fungi. Like, the believer's sense of awe and wonder reaches a further level. So one who studies engineering and recognizes the delicate calculations and skill sets that go into the construction of a system, say an electrical grid, has a much better understanding about the awe-inspiring delicate balance that holds the Milky Way together. So these are, I'm paraphrasing things that he said. So Nursi provides lots of examples of, of, of these. Uh, another important aspect of this is Relying on or attributing things to God also allows for room for the constancy in the in the uh, physical world, because if these are manifestations of God, right? God is a is, is an immutable reality, and His manifestations can then also have constancy in them if He wills uh, that. Now, this said. The third thing I would say about his take on science is that he also cautions about being overwhelmed uh, by a false sense of mastery over the forces of nature that has you know, widely characterized human attitudes since the Enlightenment. A sense that's a sense that we are that's disappearing only now. Uh, 
as we face environmental crisis and you know, we have witnessed what nuclear weapons can do, et cetera, right? And he would say, I guess, no invention can transform the ultimate human predicament of facing eventual death and separation from the things that we are attached to in, in, a, in, in the world. And this is a world where our abilities can never match our wants and expectations. Because we want things and when we, we want them forever. We never, we want our cakes, right? But we still want them as we eat them. And that's the human predicament, right? So more important than the band-aid solutions to our worldly problems and difficulties, such as say the, the ability to transport large quantities of stuff from one place to another in a short period of time, which provides solutions to, to famines, for instance, right? So these are good things. And he would say, these are really good things, right? He would want the human being to recognize his ultimate vulnerab vulnerability, the predicament that he is in, and that he would want that to be the starting point. And after that is the starting point, then he would be fine and actually celebrating uh, the, the scientific enterprise and accomplishments. Well, thank you, Mustafa. You've, you've given us a sense there, even in the, the few minutes I've allowed you to, to grapple with the, 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 the ways in which Nursi himself grappled, as many 20th century philosophers of science, or indeed political, as well as religious thinkers, uh, did. So as we wrap up our conversation then, perhaps I can ask you why, if that needs uh, stating after your elo eloquent explanations already, why is Besides Nursi, still relevant today? Um, well, I, 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 as you said, I think the answer to that question is already embedded in the entire conversation that we have had. I would repeat the fact that we are living in the modern world, and uh, this is a very comfortable world. Uh, you know, compared to, I mean, you and I are, I are both historians and compared to much of the human experience in the past, they, they, we are living in the world of paradise now. But even as we live in the world of paradise, we recognize that we are digging our own graves uh, by emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere. And perhaps there are many other things that we are not recognizing now, but that are, that are digging our graves eventually, the grave of humanity, I mean, not only individuals. Um, and none of that, none of that is eliminating the, the existential problems that we all face, right? Who are you? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? Um, so Nursi is a scholar of Islam, but also a very profound thinker about these existential matters. And in his deep thought, he provides us answers, but perhaps more importantly, ways of thinking about how to think about these existential matters. And for that reason, I know of uh, you know, Christian theologians who really admire Nursi and you know, reading uh, Nursi's uh, works. Um, that is something that we cannot pass. And uh, as I said at the beginning, Nursi is a famous unknown. Uh, he, his name is becoming a, you know, well-known uh, phenomenon around the world exists increasingly in the past 20 years or so, but the content of his work has not been fully and properly appreciated. So 
that's what I'm trying to do in my own work. And I'm really uh, grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to um, you know, pass a glimpse of that in your podcast. Well, the gratitude is all on my side, and I'm sure that of our listeners. Professor Mustafa Tuna, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Naya. Da 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 da